Dave and Becky and Hannah. Really appreciated the selection of songs this morning. Before we get into First Timothy, let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank You. Thank You for this awesome privilege that You have given to us. To be able to open Your Word together, to, to study, to reflect on what You have said, and Lord, to apply it to our lives that we might become better reflections of the Lord Jesus. So we ask, Lord, that You would Minister in us and through us and among us by Your Holy Spirit. That every word that is spoken and heard here, every word, Father, might be Your Word and only Your Word. Lord, that You would work in us in our thoughts, and in our words, in our plans, our dreams, our hopes. Father, that everything might bring You the praise and the honor and the glory that is Yours. And we bring it to You through our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, it's a, a privilege to be able to stand here to um, to take some of the burden off our brother Wally. Um, I know he's had... It's always a struggle when you're maintaining a watch over a loved one, knowing that their days are few. Last week, Thanksgiving Sunday, Trevor asked us a question. What does it mean to be thankful? It's a good question that we ought to be asking ourselves frequently, simply because we get so easily accustomed to the abundance in our lives. I mean, merely from a material perspective, the poorest among us, is incredibly wealthy by the standards of the vast majority of the population of this planet. And when we think of the incredible gift that has been given to us in Christ Jesus, that we, of all people, should be so loved, so cherished, so valued, that God would as one person put it, God would bankrupt heaven to restore us to fellowship, to relationship with Him. How can we not be filled with gratitude? And how can we fail to express that continuously in thanksgiving and praise to the One who died in our place? 
who has now risen from the dead and ascended to heaven and who is at this very moment continuously interceding for us in the court of heavenly justice. Now, that's at least one of the purposes of the breaking of bread to remind us and to give us a vehicle thanksgiving and praise. And that's pretty much where Paul found himself as he wrote to Timothy. To get a bit of the context for the passage today, we need to start back at 1 Timothy 1 and uh, verse 9. By the way, if you happen to be using the uh, Brown Pew Bibles, I don't think very many are, but it's on page 1846. Um, 1 Timothy 1 and verse 9. Uh, verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, verse 10, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank Him Verse 12, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overwhelmed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's mention in verse 11 of the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. That phrase set set his heart back to the scene more than 30 years previously when he first encountered the risen Lord Jesus. So this paragraph that we have just read is something of a parenthesis in the flow of the whole letter. It seems that God delights in choosing the most unlikely people to accomplish great things for Him. Consider just for a few examples, Jacob. The younger of the twins born to Isaac's wife, Rebecca, and a scoundrel at best. Yet it is through him that the family of God is traced, and not through his elder brother, Esau. Joseph, the second youngest son of Jacob, 
in a society in which the eldest son had precedence. This lad was daddy's favorite and consequently disdained by his older brothers. And yet, he became the agent of salvation for his whole extended family. Think about Ruth. A foreigner from a nation that was condemned by God for their hostility and their lack of hospitality toward the people of Israel. And yet she became the grandmother of King David. Think about David himself. The youngest son of Jesse. Again, his society, the youngest son, had no standing. And yet God chose him instead of any of his brothers to be king. And then there was this guy, Saul of Tarsus. Saul was a religious extremist. He knew the law. And he condemned anyone who did not keep it as flawlessly as he did. Like many of the Pharisees of his day, he could not accept the teaching of this Jesus guy. He did everything he could to stamp out uh, this what he considered to be a heresy. He was so adamant that the way of the Pharisees was correct that he hounded everyone who claimed Jesus had risen from the dead and dragged them off to prison or to death. And then one day, his world fell apart and he encountered the Lord Jesus himself. You read that story in Acts 22. Now, we might wonder at Paul's choice of words in verse 12. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Really? In what way was Paul faithful? Well, you could look back and he say, well, possibly Paul was faithful to what he believed before he encountered the truth of Jesus. But I don't think that's what Paul was referring to. What does it mean to be faithful, after all? Well, dictionary.com says that the word implies long-continued and steadfast fidelity to whatever one is bound to by a pledge or duty or obligation. And using that as a definition, it's clear that Paul was, in fact, faithful. From that momentous day when he saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ just outside of Damascus, Paul preached and studied and proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. In fact, he was at pains to make sure that what he said was accurate. According to his letter to the Galatian church, he checked his understanding with Peter and James early on, and then a number of years later with the whole church leadership in Jerusalem. 
Probably the clearest record we have of Paul's appointment to ministry is in Acts 13. And just refresh our memory. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, and a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, if you just read Acts, it seems like that was a matter of days or perhaps a few weeks. In fact, it was ten years after the Damascus Road experience. So, Paul has had a period of spiritual formation and of testing. By this time, he's also made at least one, if not two trips to Jerusalem. So, he was faithful. Verse 13, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly and in unbelief. Okay, in what way was Saul of Tarsus ignorant? He knew the Scriptures. I mean, by that, at that point, the only Scriptures were our Old Testament. And he was well trained in these Scriptures. He could quote any chapter or verse, although those divisions didn't exist, at the drop of a hat. And no doubt he had seen and heard the Lord Jesus, or if he hadn't, at least he had heard discussion about him among his Pharisee colleagues. But it couldn't be said that he was truly enlightened. He had had the facts, but his spiritual blinders were still in place and he could not make the connections that are required for true faith. Let's not be too hard on Saul. Think back in your own life. How many times did you have to be told about the Lord Jesus before you made the necessary connection to understand both your need and the incredible gift that He offers? In my own case, I know it was at least dozens, if not hundreds of times. Whether for Saul of Tarsus, or for me, or for you, that enlightenment is solely the work of the Holy Spirit. And without Him, we can only know about Jesus. That's the best we can do. We cannot know Him personally. All ignorant? Yep. Because he simply did not know the truth. But he goes on and he says, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. 
A few years before he wrote this letter to Timothy, he wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus. And he said, in chapter 2, he said, By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Neither the faith nor the love that we have originates with us. They're the work, again, of the Holy Spirit, who alone can take the blinders off and allow us to respond to the grace of God in faith and love, reflecting, however imperfectly, His own. That was Paul's experience. It's been my experience. And if you claim to trust the Lord Jesus with your life, It is your experience as well. Paul's conversion and subsequent calling to the work of an apostle reveals something of how abundant is the grace that's poured out to each one of us. Quite frankly, it does not matter where you start from. Whatever sin is in your past is irrelevant. You might be guilty of any number of heinous crimes. But the grace of our Lord overflows for you with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Think of it. Satan was a fanatic, a religious extremist, guilty of the murder and imprisonment of many. And look at what our gracious merciful God was able to do through Him. So if you have not yet received this grace, this faith, this love, please don't let anything in your past stand in your way. And may the Holy Spirit do His work in you even now that you also may rejoice in the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. My brothers and sisters, have you also noticed that since you surrendered to Him, you are more and more acutely aware of your own sinfulness, of your failure, of your inability to live the holiness to which we have been called? So it shouldn't be surprising that Paul would say of himself after 30 odd years of working with the Lord Jesus that he is the foremost of sinners. He's not so much looking back to before Damascus. He's already declared those evils. 
Rather, He says, I am the foremost. Not, I was. Suggesting that this is His current assessment of the situation. Yes, those past evils have been dealt with. Whatever else is in the past is covered by the all-sufficiency of Jesus. It's the current situation. Today. This moment. That's the issue. For which I have to continuously repent and seek His gracious forgiveness. But that's exactly why Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. But I received mercy for this reason. that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. It was Paul's understanding that he was an example, a model, the grace of God for all who would ever hear the Gospel. Because of his sinful past, he could fittingly become a spokesman for the Gospel both to Jews and to Gentiles. Our Bibles and 2,000 years of Christian history testify to the effectiveness of that witness. To the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory Forever and ever. Amen. Just thinking about what God has done and is doing, both for Himself and for the church of Jesus Christ, caused Paul to stop and sing the praises of God. Yeah, he was writing important instructions to his colleague and friend, but reflecting on how that had come about, made him stop to extol the one who had not only saved him from destruction, but who had also commissioned him to spread the good news of the salvation, the redemption, the, that this loving God had made available to all who come to Him through Jesus Christ. And reflecting on that made Paul stop to sing the praises of God. I can, I can picture Paul. I don't know whether he was in prison at this point. Good chance that he was. But I can picture him throwing his head back and lifting his hands and he sings, to the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. His poor scribe had to keep up. But in view of all that God has done for us, how can we not live lives of thankfulness and gratitude? We dare not allow ourselves to become so used to it that it becomes whole hum and we begin to take it for granted.
Don't, let's not degenerate into cultural Christians. We need to make regular use of the weekly celebration of the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread, and the other gatherings of God's people for sharing His grace, for study, for worship. Just to keep it fresh and to keep us growing. Having concluded his detour to his personal testimony, Paul then returned to the subject at hand, the false teachings that were spreading in Ephesus and uh, Timothy's uh, proper actions to address them. Verse 18, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hermanius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. In so many words, Paul is handing over the torch to his protege. Timothy now is to live as the model, the example of what it means to live for the glory of God. But that charge was not to Timothy alone, but to every one of us. Timothy had received it himself the day that he committed himself to the Lord Jesus. And every one of us who has who names Jesus as Lord has received the same charge as Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. Take a look at chapter Colossians three and one. <clears throat> he, he, he says clearly, if then you have been raised with Christ. Here's your charge. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. 
and be thankful. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving or thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. That's the charge we've received. In addition, Timothy was placed in a leadership role, especially in Ephesus. A role that is similar in many respects to that of our elders here in this assembly. So Paul was writing to Timothy to help him in his new role and to lay out some of the specific and immediate responsibilities that were his. Um, verse 18 uh, that you may uh, by them you may wage the good warfare holding faith and the good conscience now I'm aware that the idea of warfare especially within the church raises the hackles of some but like it or not that's the biblical image of our situation And as I've said before in different contexts, if you don't think you're in a battle, it's likely because you are already a prisoner of war. The enemy of our faith, the enemy of our Lord, is no gentleman. And he'll take advantage of any advantage we might offer either in our ignorance or our innate sinfulness. Like Paul's word, use of the word love in uh, verse 5 that uh, our brother David spent some time exploring. The word faith here also has a variety of potential meanings. But context suggests that Paul here means faith in the Lord Jesus as described in the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which he had been entrusted. And that gospel informs and trains our consciences toward a godliness that reflects the very nature of our God. So, faith and good conscience go together inseparably. And there's a danger By rejecting this, verse 19, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among whom are Hermanius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. I spent a few years on the East Coast. I'm no sailor, but I, I learned a few things by osmosis mostly. Where do shipwrecks occur? Well, generally, they happen in relatively shallow waters where the waves are the highest. And in the same way, shipwrecks of faith happen when the faith is shallow 
when it is not well taught. Like the seed that, the seed that fell on the rocky ground in Jesus' parable. Some hear the word and immediately receive it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Shipwreck. Others get shipwrecked by not paying attention to the signals of danger that conscience raises. Like a sailor not paying attention to the wind or to the marker buoys. By not heeding their conscience, it gradually loses its effectiveness in directing the person so that he ends up smashed against the rocks. And unfortunately, one may have a similar effect on the conscience of another. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church that sitting against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. That's why it's so critically important for new believers to be taught in the Word of God and to be discipled over a period of months or even years. Conscience formation simply does not happen overnight. And it was into this mix that Timothy was sent. Some false teachers who themselves didn't understand the purpose of the law of God in the Old Testament. And then there were others who went off the rails into irreverent babble, leading people into more and more ungodliness, their talk spreading like gangrene. Now, we don't know very much about these two men that are named here, this Hymenius and Alexander. But if they are the same two that are mentioned in Paul's next letter to Timothy, Hymenius taught that the believer's resurrection had already happened. So there was no more salvation to to be obtained by Christ Jesus. And Alexander was perhaps the coppersmith who did Paul great harm. Years ago, years before, when Paul had departed from Ephesus, he had warned the Ephesian elders that I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So Timothy was sent to help that church deal with these wolves these false teachers, so that the flock of God, the local church, might be strengthened. But remember, Paul says it here. Even his judgment on Hymenius and Alexander was so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. It was intended to give them opportunity to repent and to come back to the truth that is in Christ Jesus. The point of this whole passage is this. It is never too late 
to repent, to change course. It's never too late to receive all that our loving God yearns to give you. It does not matter what you've done, where you've been, what kind of person you are even today. The Lord Jesus never requires anything of you that He is not ready to provide. You don't need to clean your life up before you can come to Him. Just come. He'll take care of the rest. So come. Come today. The prayer room's open. There will be folk there to help you in these first steps toward true life and freedom in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You for the incredible, almost unbelievable offer that You have given to us. Thank You, Father, for that immeasurable grace that You pour out into our lives because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Because of His death. Because of His resurrection. Father, we thank You that even now, at this moment, He is interceding, presenting the blood of His sacrifice as sufficient for our atonement. Thank You, Father. Thank You for loving us so much. Lord, I pray for those who have yet to make this choice to come to You. That You would work in their hearts. That You would Help them to make that choice. That Your Holy Spirit would be so moving in them that they would not be able to say no. Father, to You be all praise and glory and honor in Christ Jesus. Amen.